Welcome to Law & More, the podcast from award-winning Hong Kong law firm, Bose Cohen & Collins, that explores issues in the legal world and beyond. This time, our guest is Senior Counsel David Lung, whose outstanding career with the Department of Justice culminated in a three-year spell as Director of Public Prosecutions. David reflects on his legal studies in early days as a solicitor, the responsibilities of being a public prosecutor, and his recent return to private practice. He talks with our senior partner, Colin Cohen. Stay tuned. David, welcome to Laura Moore. I'm, like I asked all my guests, what's been keeping you busy recently? <laughs> now, first of all, thank you very much. And it's a great honor and privilege to be able to be here. I have started practice in January. So practice work. So the grind of private practice as a barrister, as senior counsel. We'll get on to that a little bit later, but I'd like to talk a little bit about your distinguished career as a public prosecutor. I want to go a little bit back to your upbringing. Tell me a little bit about your family background, where you went to school, and how did you really find your way into the law? Well, just like a lot of people in Hong Kong, I was basically raised in Hong Kong. I studied all my primary school, secondary school here in Hong Kong. And then there came a stage where I have to make a decision as to which career that I was heading to. Now, it's actually a bit of a twist for me to become a lawyer. Originally, I thought to become a teacher because I thought that one of the skills that I have is to talk and to try to explain things in a simple way. But then, cut the long story, originally I applied for math uh, or physics, but my results were not good enough for those. And then I was picked by the law faculty. It was time where the political uncertainty of Hong Kong between China and UK, so not a lot of people applied to become a law student. And so there I was. By pure chart, a law was something to get a profession, I presume. Yes. A little bit about your interests at school before you went into law. I've always liked to do some sports, swimming and racket games. I'm not too good at football because I'm not tall enough or strong enough like the others. So I usually play racket games. So a bit of badminton, squash, tennis and swimming. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about Hong Kong U because I'll make a full and frank disclosure that I was a teacher on the PCLL. You were just the year before. I didn't have the privilege of teaching you, but you did know about me. Yes, of course. I didn't have a privilege, Colin, to be your student. I joined Hong Kong U at 86 to 89 doing the LLB. I think you left around 88. And so I've always seen you as a lecturer and I said, okay, this is a tall, funny and clearly intelligent lecturer. But somehow we just miss each other during lectures. But those were fun days. Yeah, you had many, many colleagues of yours who have now risen to very eminent hosts, even in the judiciary and in practice as well. Yes. So I'm interested in the type of things you did at university and the PCLL. What was your intention? Was it to go to the bar or become a solicitor? As I study law, I knew that I like advocacy. I like to speak. I like to have the time in court. But because I was the eldest in the family, so starting off as a barrister, not knowing how much you're going to earn, whether you need uh, upfront running capital, posed as a little difficulty for me. So I've always keep being a barrister as an option, but just to have the financial stability in terms of income. So I chose to take the solicitor stream. So I started off with a trainee solicitor, two years down the road became a solicitor and then worked towards that. And type of work as a solicitor? 
Anything exciting, or is it down to conveyancing and wills or anything of interest? Well, life treated me very well. I was doing a, a bit of a variety of work, personal injuries, uh, matrimonial, and employees' compensation. And one interesting aspect that led me eventually to become a prosecutor was because one of the clients was the insurance company, and they would instruct at least my firm at that time to defend traffic offences. So within a year, I did about. 40 trials, either careless driving, reckless driving, running through all sorts of magistrates' court. And so that started to develop my advocacy. Yeah. And what was interesting, you were admitted as a solicitor in 1992, and yet three years later, you then joined the prosecutions division of a legal department, as it then was, and became a Crown Counsel. Correct. Quite a dramatic step to take. Yes. Actually, it's like this. As I've told you, the trials that I did, I I found, okay, this is what I love. I love to go to court as a solicitor. It's very difficult. I'm sure you'll understand that if you are out of office, say, two full days doing trials in a week, then it eats into the time that you need to sit in the office, do the paperwork. And then I happened to have a colleague at the firm that I was working in. It's Mr. Joseph Toh. He's now a retired magistrate. And then he worked there briefly. And then later on, he joined the then legal department. And then he told me about the work as a prosecutor. And I thought, okay, this is the type of things that I love to do. And I can explore the opportunity for efficacy. So I applied. And I was fortunate enough to be admitted. And it was 25 years of a very distinguished career, starting off really pre-handover days. Who was your mentor as you were working your way up the DOJ? Because you, you were always being promoted uh, as you went along during that 25 years. The three persons whom I owe a great credit to it. First one is Peter Chapman. I was a summer student in a law firm. And the first time I met Peter was when he prosecuted a case. And I saw, okay, this is a prosecutor who knows all his materials back and forth. And he was calm. He was articulate. And then when later on, when I joined the DOJ, he also was prosecuting. And then sometimes I talked to him and spoke to him, and then he would share with me tip. Second one, it's Andrew Bruce. Who was a deputy high court judge very recently yes. in a case in which I was instructed on. Yes. And then Andrew and I worked for uh, a long time within the DOJ uh, before he left for private practice. But all along, he has been a great mentor and good friend. He would give me advices in terms of how best to present a case what are perhaps the secondary points not to be focused on, but focus on the main issue. Last one's Kevin Serpos. Who is another, who became a DPP yes. and is now a High Court judge and now in the Court of Appeal. Was it a steep learning curve? Yes, very much so. Because originally when I first started off, I only had experiences prosecuting traffic offences in the magistrate's court, one or two civil trials in the district court. And then I distinctly remember in the first week, I missed the training because I joined in October and their training starts in September. So I was given the so-called prosecution menu, basically materials you read, you brush up. And then I was sent to the Western Magistrates Court to start my prosecution training by doing actual cases. We only crossed swords once. Well, no, quite a few other times. But it was a very nice case. It was a case whereby, yeah. I think you were, at that stage, you were reasonably senior. Um, I think senior public prosecutor. Recruiter, yeah. yeah. It's an interesting case yep. because yep. we can talk about it because I was instructing. It's, it's done. It's yep. done. I had Jerry McCoy. Yeah. And we're in the magistrate's court and I was acting for a very fine establishment in the Lang Kwai Fong area. I will not mention any yep. names. 
where my client got accused of breach of a liquor licensing Correct. because there was dancing. That's right. And the whole case turned on what is meant by dancing. Correct. And Jerry McCoy dug up some very, very old past history of the law. Correct. And it was decided a history of the legislation. And we had to have a big debate as to whether just standing still and slightly gyrating up and down comes within dancing, whereby you did an amazing job. But in the end of the day, I think Jerry, in his normal fashion, yeah. dissuaded the magistrate. Yeah. And then there was yeah. a doubt as to whether the totality of the evidence demonstrated that they were dancing. And yeah. eventually, I think the defendants were acquitted. Yes, yes, gloriously yeah. acquitted, which <laughs> I enjoyed. We've also crossed swords in other cases, which we won't talk about because they're ongoing. Now, what I'm interested in this is that you also, around that time in 2013, you completed a master's in law in human rights. Correct. What made you do that? Yes, I was actually working. Now, number one was Kevin Servos did that. And he basically shared with myself and also other prosecutors that it's an amazing course and it helped tremendously in the professional work. And also at, at that time, I mean, case law start to develop the human rights dimension. A lot of cases, you see the judges using those proportionality approach. So I thought it would help. And I thought, okay, all right. So I bite the bullet despite the heavy workload, doing it part-time for two years. I think it's two nights per week with assignments. Yeah, Simon Young. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And Johannes Chan and I think Patrick Lim. I can't remember his first name, but Mr. Lim also taught on those. And I also remember they have guest lecturers, the former Chief Justice Andrew Lee as a guest lecturer. (laughs) where he share his experience and wisdom with us. So it's an amazing course. Yes, when I did my Cambridge and my master's, one of my subjects was human rights with Paddy O'Higgins, a great guy. Actually, it was not human rights. It was called civil liberties at that time. That's correct, correct, correct. And when I was at the LLB, it's called civil liberties. Yes. You're exactly right. It helped you become a better prosecutor doing that? Definitely. You will think, okay, apart from the case that you were doing, if you look at it from a human rights angle, how is it going to impact on the whole landscape of these conduct which are prohibited by the law? How best to ensure a fair trial and what was actually the policy and intention behind the ordinances? Why this conduct was prohibited? How best you can achieve by prosecuting in a fair way? That's very, very interesting. A lot of our listeners would like to know a little bit more about prosecution's duty of being a big director of public prosecutions. You were deputy director of public prosecutions in 2012, and you then became a director. Perhaps you could just outline very, very briefly the fundamental duties of a prosecutor here in Hong Kong, especially with all the dynamics in our society, society changes, the civil rights, civil disobedience, and all these very difficult tensions. But you as a prosecutor, as being in charge of a department, how do you go about this impossible job, I would say? I think number one duty as a prosecutor is that you have to ensure everything you do is fair. When I say fair, it's fair in terms of you look dispassionately with the available evidence. So you consider number one, is there a reasonable prospect of conviction of a particular charge or charges in mind? And then the second question, of course, is whether it's in the public interest to prosecute. Normally, unless it's a really petty crime, once you are satisfied with an affirmative answer in the first question, then the second question is usually quite easy. Fraud cases, money laundering, I mean, clearly it's in the public interest, unless really in exceptional circumstances. And then when you prosecute, focus to ensure that the process is fair, that the defendant has a fair trial. That's the most important thing. Now, of course, as a prosecutor, you would hope to get a conviction. But whether you can satisfy that high threshold of being reasonable doubt, 
ultimately is a matter for the jury or the judge. So result is, I would say, secondary to the process, which is the first fair trial. Yes. And to reinforce that, one of the fairest prosecutors I ever dealt with on the other side, and I did instruct him, was Gary Aldice. Yeah. And then um, of his generation, and then was John McNamara. Right. And then there was Gary Plowman, yep. who were all in the DOJ. And one thing about them as to their ability, their fairness, and how they would always disclose everything Everyone said that's how they succeeded in getting prosecutions because the jury, the judge always said, oh, they always bent over backwards to be so fair. Yes. And then once you gain the confidence of your opponents and the bench that you're always being fair, they can trust you. And once you gain that trust, then it enhances your credibility. Yes. Obviously, in the 2014 onwards, when you were deputy director and became actually the director of prosecutions in 2017, you had the political arena of the troubles, we'll call it, in general terms. Tell our listeners as to when you come to prosecute, and it's a case of political dimensions, when you have the Hong Kong standard cases, it's always politics. As a director, tell us a little bit what you can do about the tests and yardsticks, because there are lots of prosecution manuals as well, because I think they'll be interested in that. Any case, even those, as you mentioned, social unrest case, some people call them, it's no different to in a fraud case. We all apply the same standard. We look at the evidence dispassionately and felt, okay, can we as a prosecutor, after assessing whether there is a reasonable prospect. Now, reasonable prospect in terms of the charge that we have in mind or the totality of the evidence, it's possible or it's likely that is the person. But if it doesn't reach the standard of a reasonable prospect, then we can't prosecute. Some people were saying, well, do prosecutors charge first and see what offers that they're coming in? No, we don't do that. If there is insufficient evidence, we came to that conclusion. And sometimes we would tell the law enforcement agency, at this stage, the evidence was insufficient. Now, if you have fresh evidence, come back to us and we'll reconsider. Yeah, from my experience is this. On many occasions, we have the 50% test. Is it more likely than not there's going to be a likely conviction? But I've been able to correspond with the Department of Justice saying, look, here's the case, here's all the other circumstances, a young person, and try to persuade them to get the bind over. Sometimes you were successful, sometimes you were not. Then I've noticed recently at that time, it's become a lot more difficult to get the bind overs. That means you don't have a conviction, but you have to keep the peace for 12 months, and then you will not have a criminal record. And sometimes that was very important in theft cases, in cases where the person's a good person, he did something stupid, let's say an altercation with a taxi driver, lots of alcohol flying around. But then the normal cases, and I find it a little bit more difficult nowadays with all the tensions. Right. I think by Nova, it's always a difficult question because usually it's those cases where perhaps due to the age, consumption of alcohol, or momentary argument of rage that people perhaps regretted what they did. Sometimes it's a fight, sometimes it's a push, sometimes it's wearing anything, or sometimes it's pure greediness. You pick something from a supermarket, from a department store, where you know, particularly for young persons, if you've got a conviction, then it will have devastating effect on them. When I was in the DOJ as a prosecutor, we always consider those principles. And I think one particular thing is whether the result of a conviction, the consequences, whether it would outweigh the gravity of the offending. Use one example, 18-year-old kid, he always been good result, good boy or girl, and then somehow he just took, say, a $100 t-shirt from a shop. 
okay, regretted it. So in those circumstances, probably the prosecution will actively consider if the representations are made. But for other cases, I won't say there is a particular percentage or a quota. Each case depends on its own facts. You became director of public prosecutions in 2017. Yeah. Great honor. Have you feel you achieved your career goal? By and large, yes. I think as DPP, one of the most important job that I was hoping to achieve was basically to ensure that, number one, the cases to prosecute decisions are fair and also provide an environment where colleagues can develop professionally and rise and gain the experience. And I hope I have achieved that. Yeah, obviously you prosecuted several high-profile cases, but when you became the DPP, how much of your time was taken up with the administration of a department and putting out, I call it fires, we all put out fires in private practice, small fires, big fires, that happens all the day. And how much of your time was you able to go to court? As there are a lot of administrative management, and that was about, I think, around 70 to 75%. Overseeing cases, giving directions, giving steers. Sometimes, as you say, it's urgent. People came to you after court. They need guidance. They need steer. But I try to maintain court work for two reasons. Number one, because I love going to court. And number two, is I think it's important as DPP to lead by example. You can't really say, because I'm so busy, I'm not doing it. I don't think that's right. Well, correct. Your predecessors, Kevin Zervos, Keith Young, Ian McWalters, Grenville Cross, all of them, I call it, going into the coal face and digging the coal and showing that leading by example. Yep. Prominent cases that ring up in your minds of high-profile cases which you're proud of. By proud of, I mean you'll allow the legal system, the law to develop. You know, it became a high-watermark case. Anyone's in particular? I don't have a particular case in mind. Usually what I do is if I find perhaps SDPP, if I find that there is an important point of law or issue, that needs to be addressed, then I'll try, if possible, to do that case myself with the assistance of colleagues. I don't think it's fair to single out any particular case. Yeah. You appeared in a court of final appeal, and an area which I would like to get your views on, you were involved in this, the admission of overseas counsel. Right. And to help our listeners, those are having eminent QCs who are admitted in Hong Kong to appear in matters and particularly in the criminal area, you did a few cases whereby the Secretary of Justice had to play a more vocal position in the past. You just followed what the bar did, whereby the court said, no, 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 I want actual submissions from the Secretary of Justice as to what is the real public interest. Because you did two cases, Reed Perry, Jonathan Kaplan. Yeah. Your views on that? I think because Hong Kong is still doing the common law system, and it has all long been a tradition that in appropriate cases that we have those eminent Queen's Council, um, usually from um, the United Kingdom, to come and assist us. As you mentioned, I think for Jonathan Kaplan, it was a case in terms of money laundering, yes. where he has been involved substantially. And uh, I did that ad hoc admission myself before the uh, chief judge. And it's always balancing exercise. In terms of, I can understand, of course, the local bar, they would feel one way or the other, why do you need an overseas silk? But on the other hand, from the Secretary for Justice position, in a particular case, if the issue, the court would be assisted by the eminent QC from the United Kingdom with the particular relevant experience doing that particular case. Now, one, it would help in terms of the jurisprudence in development, and two, 
whoever works with the QCA will actually learn and benefit. So I think it's important to find the right case and then make the application. And ultimately, I can see usually the court, if they feel that the jurisprudence and the public interest of Hong Kong as a whole would benefit, they would allow that. Yes, because in a recent case, which I've been doing, we had QC's admitted long-running case, commercial fraud, which you're familiar with, and they were admitted. And I think they added greatly to the advancement of the legal profession here in Hong Kong, because nowadays at the bar, you would have a local silk appearing, as well as juniors helping them out, and everyone gains the benefit about it. You took silk, you became a senior counsel in respect of matters. You took silk or senior counsel when you're in the department, along with some other people. At the same time. Yeah, I think the difference is this. When you became a silk, you will have to work harder because your opponent, the court, and everyone in a case expects more from you. And you need to expect more from yourself. You cannot just give the usual. You try to work harder and take the extra mile. Right. Now, in 2020, you decided to move on and you're now in practice yes. at the eminent Chambers of Liberty Chambers, founded by the late Sandy King and the currently Graham Harris. Very, very well-known set of chambers doing criminal work, doing all type of work. Tell us a little bit, what made you get on that road? I think after I decided to leave the government and then having taken a bit of rest, I'm obviously too young to retire and I still hope to contribute to the legal community in a different role. So the, the most natural one would be to start private practice. And the type of work you're hoping to do? I mainly am now starting doing criminal work and also a bit of the civil work that I used to do, mainly criminal and a little bit of civil, personal injuries and matrimonial. So you're now, it's a nice little expression, gamekeeper turned poacher. <laughs> what would you say to that? I think it is actually doing the same thing from different sides. I mean, as I previously said, as a prosecutor, you ensure the process is fair, number one. You see whether you can achieve the result, but you're not judged by the result and you see the overall picture. But now as if acting for a defendant in a case, then of course you look to the best interest of that person in terms of cause, in terms of result. But the rules behind are just the same. I suspect you'll be very busy and I suspect your phone is ringing all the time from <laughs> various solicitors who wish to deliver great, nice briefs to you. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting times for you. Do you feel a little bit worried? Do you feel a little bit stressed by that? Something's all new going to the bar from all those years in government and now you're on a different mode. I took a bit of time just in terms of there is no set office hour. You are your own boss. And unlike in the government where you are not short of work, the government is always overworked, everyone. Now it's sometimes you need to wait. Sometimes you're very busy. Sometimes, okay, you have a breathing space and then need time to plan your own time. I sometimes have more free time to spend with my family and the kids. That's great. I always ask this to my guests because I think it's important and we've got to be real. There's always this big elephant in the room. Hong Kong is going through difficult times as a new boss, a new chief executive. It's the pandemic. And the big elephant in the room is national security, law, etc. Your thoughts on the city's future? Optimistic? Concerned? I think everyone has to contribute from their respective roles. In my former role as a prosecutor, ensure that's fair. Now, as a defense, I think everyone do their part. Yeah. I always say, we as lawyers, I think we're rather like grand taxis. We go around and we're, we're held down and... 
we're there to defend everybody, no matter how bad, no matter how terrible. It's our job to ensure that the system works by either prosecuting or defending. And without lawyers who are independent and the rule of law, that is fundamental. That's my view. What do you say to that? Lawyers, they can be barristers or this on. If you are acting for a particular party, do your best. Do your best for that party within the rules. And then I think that we can go forward. Yes, I always say, well, I remember at Cambridge, I went to a lecture. It wasn't in my area, but I went to a great Clive Parry who lectured on even Eichmann, the most outrageous war criminal, deserved a fair trial, deserved the best possible lawyer to defend them. Indeed, indeed. I, I always say when I was in the department, if you want a case as a prosecutor, but somehow on appeal, there's some flaw in the process, somehow the court found that the trial was not fair, then you lose the appeal, lose the cause, and there is a retrial. It's not fair on the defendant, it's not fair on the victim, it's not fair on the system is not fair on Hong Kong. Everybody loses if somehow the process is less than fair. So ensure a fair trial for everyone irrespective of the identity of a defendant, irrespective of the type of crimes, however gruesome, horrible, I think that we can maintain the rule of law. And I think the rule of law is fundamental. David, I think it's a privilege, A, having you on Law and More, and B, it's a privilege for Hong Kong to have you back in practice. And I'm hoping that I can deliver a wonderful brief to you somewhere down the road where we can work together. David, thank you so much for joining us on Law and More. No, thank you very much, Colin, for having me. You've been listening to Law and More, brought to you by Bose Cohen and Collins. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. For more legal opinion, news and updates, please visit bosecohencollins.com or you can find us on social media. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon on our next episode.